When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You are listening to AVFC Extra, a no-nonsense look at the club we all love. Brought to you by the Claret and Blue podcast. Hello and welcome to a new episode of AVFC Extra. I'm James Rush and today I'm joined by none other than Josh Williams, Reach PLC scouting writer. What we're going over today is actually going to be rather uh, quite enjoyable, if I do say so myself. And after a week away from speaking about uh, football matches on Claret and Blue, we're here to dissect Aston Villa's uh, monumental 7-2 win over Liverpool. We're going into uh, the performance of Jack Grealish, uh, the performance of Ollie Watkins, Dean Smith's performance as manager and how he masterminded that excellent victory. We'll also be talking about what went wrong for Liverpool and what went right for Aston Villa, because on that day, so much very did go right. Uh, without further ado, here's the rest of the podcast. I guess the first question, Josh, is how are you doing? How are you getting on? I'm doing good, mate, yeah. Um, thanks for inviting me on a week after the result, giving me a bit of a, a bit of time to get over the result. Um, it was a painful one, but yeah, thanks for getting me involved. So what I was going to say then about that result is, as a Villa fan, this is... It's not a norm, but this happens. Like Liverpool beat us six one on a what was it was even six nil. I don't remember that score on at all. I don't want to think about it on a Valentine's Day back in uh, I think it was twenty sixteen. So this is something that it's not not a common occurrence, but we we have been through it. So I mean, I would have needed that week to kind of get over it myself. I, I think so. It's a bit of a freak result. It's a nasty one to kind of swallow. But I, I get you. I guess you're doing a lot better uh, a week or so after it. Yeah, to be honest, it, it, it the way the match played out. I think because of Liverpool's success in recent years, when it got to like 5-2, I still thought Liverpool had a chance. So, I mean, that's a testament to, to Liverpool's level, I suppose. But once it got to like 6-7, and seven, which sounds crazy even saying that now, um, it was more just, I mean, I was kind of laughing. I was laughing almost. Um, and you, you just resigned yourself to defeat. I, f- I felt worse after 1-0 losses than I had after the 7-2 defeat to Villa for some reason. Um, but yeah, I mean, go figure. Yeah, I think that's what we're hearing quite a lot, actually, from uh, from the Liverpool fans I've spoken to. Is uh, you know, it, it was a bit of a, a tough one to swallow, but you move on, don't you? Because Liverpool, you you win eighteen games in a row. There's a free class or a, a mad draw somewhere, and you carry on winning. So I guess it's testament to a Liverpool side that I thought myself that you were getting back into it. I, I was really genuinely terrified. You know, when when you got two goals, I was thinking. Nah, this is it. Now it's an open match. No matter what we score, they can. It'll be block basketball. They can come back whenever. They, it's going to be a high score in a high tempo affair. But I think actually one of the biggest things that come, come out, Josh, about the match was when I spoke to Liverpool supporters. They thought something like this, not a seven-two, but something like this was coming, like a pretty big loss. I can understand it to an extent. Um, I think Liverpool in recent times have, have been inclined to give away the odd freebie. Um, and I think beforehand in the past that that hasn't really been the case for maybe the past two years. I think anything that you gained against Liverpool had to be you know truly earned um, through intricate possession play or a clever little set piece move or, or whatever. But you know five minutes into the match, Adzi and give gives a gift 
there was three deflections, a set piece goal. So Liverpool were giving away all kinds of villa. But in terms of um, feeling that this was coming, I'm not so sure. I entirely agree with it. I mean, when we faced Leeds on the opening day of the season, Leeds are obviously renowned for being a good attacking side. Liverpool only faced six shots. I know obviously Leeds scored three of them, but in most other matches, any time you, you face only six shots, three of them are unlikely to find a net. Um, against Arsenal, I think we faced four shots. Against Chelsea, I think we faced five. So, you know, that, and on the, on the attacking side of the game, Liverpool are taking, you know, roughly around 20 shots themselves at, at, at the opposite end of the pitch. So, in terms of dominating the opposing team, really owning the pitch, Liverpool, for me, were, were kind of mastering that. Obviously, there's a high risk attached to the the way Liverpool defend in particular. And it can go wrong, and particularly when you catch opposing players offside and it doesn't get flagged until VAR looks at it. It can feel a bit dangerous. But most of the time, Liverpool feel in control for me. Um, but I, I can understand why you know, it's looked a little bit leaky since, funnily enough, since we won the league. Um, but I, I didn't expect anything like a 7-2 defeat. I thought, you know, at worst, Liverpool would would, would suffer maybe a Wofford, another Wofford result where we yeah. get beat 3-0. Um, but 7-2 is different level. So a big part of that 7-2 might be, I guess, a game plan because at the time I was a bit shell-shocked. I didn't really process it or have an, any way of viewing it kind of with a thoughtful approach or an analytical approach. It just kind of hits you. Not just like a freak, but certainly like something just that just stands out as an odd result. Um, we want to talk about a perfectly executed game plan because we hear that a lot, when, especially on the Villa side and um, from players, from the manager, Dean Smith, the head coach, sorry. We hear a lot about this perfectly executed game plan uh, from your eyes. I mean, you've written two articles at length now about the Liverpool side of this game and the Villa side of this game, which we'll link in the description below. Um, what was the game plan from Villa side? How did they get it right? How did they plan to beat Liverpool? Well, I was in there. I was intrigued to see, to see what Dean Smith said after the match, actually, because... You know, exploiting Liverpool's high lines has been the, the big line, really. And that's, pe- people say it like it's easily done, but it's obviously not. And, and Villa seems to do it really, really well. And the, the game plan worked not only in, on the attacking side of the game, but on the defensive side too. So I think after the match, Ollie Watkins was speaking. I included this quote in my piece for um, Birmingham Mail. And he, he, when asked about you know, what got worked on during the week, he pointed out the fact that Villa placed a lot of emphasis on blocking the passing lanes for Liverpool. And I thought when I was watching the game, I picked up on that really, really quickly inside the first five or ten minutes. Van Dijk and Gomez were kind of afforded possession, but um, they looked quite uncomfortable with it. Um, they couldn't really pick out players ahead of them. They were forcing passes and they were getting intercepted. And, you know, Gomez was just, you know, unintentionally almost passing to Van Dijk's weaker foot, which, you know, suggested an element of uncertainty and all that sort of stuff. And I think, I think Aston Villa's defensive line was quite important as well on the day because the Villa were reluctant to retreat too much, but they retreated just enough to avoid getting done in behind by the likes of Mo Salah and I'm sure Sadio Mane if he was playing on the day. But Jota's quick himself anyway. Um, so I thought I thought Villa's defensive line, it wasn't too deep and it wasn't too high. It was just a perfect level. 
so that they couldn't get done behind by Liverpool. And then going forward, if the ball was regained by a, a stray pass, Villa were high enough to to kind of have immediate access to Liverpool's half of the pitch. So counter-attacks could materialise quite quickly. The high line, the offside sap, whatever you want to call it, could be exploited quite quickly. And yeah, it, it, it just worked. Um, and on the attacking side of the game, see Villa quite relentless. Um, I think the obvious tactic was to exploit the high line. Um, but the way in which they did that by by um, using deep runners, the likes of Ross Barkley, I thought was ideal for this. Um, Villa used switches of play quite frequently, which is a tactic that hopefully people won't become too aware of, but it does tend to work quite well against Liverpool in terms of the way Jürgen Klopp likes his teams defend, press and all that sort of stuff. It's very much as a unit and it's very much focused on space rather than man-marking sort of thing. So if you're focusing on space and you're shuffling over to one side of the pitch, that then allows the, the switch to play to the opposite side. And Liverpool are quite vulnerable then for for the immediate five or ten seconds after that. If you think of maybe the Community Shield final, the final, there's only one game, isn't he? But Pierre-Emerick scored against Liverpool um, after Saka switched the play and, you know, Aubameyang cut inside, found a far corner. So it is a bit of a vulnerability that Liverpool have. But very few teams exploit it how well Villa did. So in terms of it being a perfectly a perfect game plan. It really, really was. Going off the back of that, the shot map shows Villa having a lot of, you know, real quality chances on the break, uh, one-on-ones or situations where they're kind of shooting from a high percentage location near the centre of the pitch, I think. Is that a case that they planned for it? Because I, I don't think you could... Can you plan for, you know, a defensive error from uh, Adrian in, in the, within the first, um, the opening stage of the match? Or is it a sense of like smelling the blood in the water and kind of pushing and pushing and pushing to make those chances, Josh? Yeah, I don't think you can particularly plan for, for that sort of thing. But at the same time, you you can be clever. You can be quite strategic. Like Liverpool played Chelsea a week earlier. And obviously Kepa was still in goal. And Liverpool pressed right up to the goalkeeper. And we don't we don't usually do that. We usually, um, as I said, focus on space and kind of occupy the final third with pressing. With Mane to the side, Salah to the side, Firmino occupying maybe a centre-back or a number six. Um, but against Chelsea, we really pressed the goalkeeper. And that's probably, as you said, smell and blood sort of thing. And I think Villa, I mean, I'm not sure if it was intentional to, to force Adrian into, into an error, but the whole shoot on side thing makes it a lot of sense. I think Villa had a few efforts from outside the box. To be honest, I think some of the goals Adrian conceded were quite unlucky, but as a Liverpool fan, I am pretty confident that if Alisson was in goal for for that 90-minute period, Liverpool would not have conceded seven. Um, and that error inside the first five minutes, that kind of sets the tone, probably wouldn't have happened. Um, but just Villa's ability to generate clear-cut chances against Liverpool, you know, shots in and around a penalty spot, doesn't happen very often. That, that's been the key difference between Liverpool and Man City, really, for the past few years. Um, both teams are in kind of press high. But the, the difference with City is when you beat City's press, you usually get a 1v1 against the Edison and they usually find a net. Whereas with Liverpool, if you beat Liverpool's press, when the shot eventually comes, you do still tend to be quite pressurised and quite rushed. And it's still difficult to score. But against Villa, 
again, it was just a different story. Jack Grealish's influence in making those um, the chances, the assists, and even the goals—it's clear to see because it's not even uh, you know an advance that is. It's in straight up goals, key chances, chances created, um, and, and goals, goals, goals he scored. Um, what did you make of his influence on the game? Because I think Jack Grealish has been a player in the English public that has a, a pretty mixed reception. If you can lean into the heavy bias of a Villa fan who's you know you know parasocially attached to him as as a, per, a person and a human being or there's the other side where it's you know maybe in some of the fan bases that come against uh, certainly Birmingham City Leeds United that have a real kind of dislike for him due to the impact he's had in matches they've played against him what's your what was your take on his influence in that particular game I must say I thought Grealish was absolutely outstanding it's the it's the best I've seen him play obviously I haven't seen him play as much as you have but it's it's the best game I've seen him have and since Jurgen Klopp took over at Liverpool, they, they haven't there hasn't been many performances at all, individual performances that have kind of you know made a real impression sort of thing. I think Lionel Messi comes to mind. Um, Neymar when we played PSG away from home in the Champions League was just untouchable. Um, Ismail Assar last season had moments against Liverpool. Obviously when we lost three nil, Pulisic had moments against Liverpool. Um, when we beat Chelsea, I think it was five two, five three, something like that. But Grealish didn't—he didn't have moments. He, he just ran the game. He, he completely controlled everything. Really, um, I thought he was unfazed in possession, which is a difficult thing to achieve against Liverpool, considering the intensity that that the team usually offer without the ball. Thought he was really composed. His decision making was flawless. Um, and one thing I really liked—that is a bit of a bother. I have, I, I would say that, that I have with him a little bit is I, th- I thought he moved the ball really quickly. And I think sometimes he's maybe inclined to take a bit too many touches. I think that offers an insight into his, his authority over the ball and over his team. But sometimes it can allow the, the opposing defence to kind of get set, organised, recognise where they are. But I thought against Liverpool, Grealis didn't afford that at all. Moved the ball really quickly. And despite playing as part of a front three, he made the most passes for Villa. Um, took three shots, generated five shots for his teammates, most passes into the box, most progressive passes, most switches of play. He was just relentless. Um, I don't Liverpool couldn't get near him. And yeah, as I said, it's one of the best performances I've seen against the Liverpool team. And it's certainly impact. Not that I didn't think he was good, because obviously it's clear that he's good. But it's, it's it's certainly impacted um, my perception of of what he is and what his potential ceiling is as well. To go a little bit off script here, um, a, a performance that kind of went under the radar, I think, nationally due to the impact of Grealish, the result itself was probably Ross Barkley because I've kind of forgot he's a Villa player. I mean, he joined, then he plays, he scores, and then there's an international break. So just a word on Ross Barkley. I mean, probably got a little bit of history with you, you know yourself being a Liverpool supporter and him being an Everton boy. Uh, what did you make of his uh, debut for the Villa? Yeah, well, Ross Barkley seems to always be quite up for matches against Liverpool. I mean, you can obviously understand why he, he tends to put his foot in where it's not welcome and all that sort of stuff. Um, but I thought against Villa, I thought against Liverpool, sorry, I thought he was really good. You know, he was quite penetrative with his run. I think in terms of the, the distance of carries in the match, I think Ross Barley had the biggest impact in terms of carrying his team up the field. That's one of his biggest strengths. You know, he's a ball carrier with, with the ball at his feet. 
Um, I thought it was interesting when Dean Smith spoke about his inclusion. He mentioned his physicality. I thought that was a great show considering, you know, how intense Liverpool are, how athletic Liverpool are. You know, Ross Barkley's an imposing player himself. Um, his goal was maybe a, a little bit fortunate, but then he played a, a quite a big part in the set-piece goal. Although it didn't come directly from the set-piece, the, the ball to the back post, which um, incessantly, I thought I'd mention, the, the last time we were at Villa Park, we were also done by a wide free kick. Um, and Liverpool's defensive approach to defending these wide free kicks doesn't tend to be a problem. It's not, not not usually a problem. But against Villa, that's that's two consecutive matches of Villa Park whereby we've been done by, by our defensive line from a free kick and the ball's kind of come round the corner to the back post and it's resulted in some sort of goal. Um, but yeah, it was badly, I thought it was a good signing. Um, I th- I'm impressed with Villa's window as a whole, to be honest. One of the things lacking from a Villa perspective in the window was maybe defensive reinforcements. I know we got Martinez in a goal, uh, Matty Cash back at right back now. Um, the defence, how did it look when when Liverpool were pushing pushing us? Because from a Villa perspective, again, we, we opened up with this. It seemed like Villa were up against it and they, they had a decent lead, but... Liverpool looked really threatening for a while. How did Villa look um, defensively when it was up against them? I thought they looked okay. Um, I think f- from the hour mark, I mean, what, from a Liverpool perspective, I, I didn't really feel that much like Liverpool were pushing, to be honest. Maybe it was because def- he was five goals in, in, in the distance. So no matter how much Liverpool push, it's unlikely to get clawed back. But, you know, after the hour mark, for example, Liverpool only took three shots from open play. That's not too bad considering... You know what we know about Liverpool and how, when they are behind, teams kind of sit back and Liverpool are quite relentless. I mean, you've only got to look at Villa Park last year. Liverpool, I think, scored two goals maybe in the final ten minutes, um, and I think Liverpool have become quite um, Ferguson's Manchester United a little bit in that regard. In terms of if you do have a lead against Liverpool in the final ten twenty minutes, you will be under the caution. I didn't really ever feel like Villa was struggling too much. I think since lockdown, actually, um, Villa's defence has, has improved quite drastically. I actually wrote about it at the end of um, last season, just in terms of not just not just in terms of clean sheets and stuff, but just expected goals against and and shots faced and all that sort of stuff. It it, it is a different defence now. Um, whatever's being worked on, I'm not too sure, but it does look a lot better. Um. And I think I think even last season, after lockdown, I think Villa came to Anfield without Jack Grealish. And I think Liverpool won. I think it was quite comfortable as well, particularly in terms of managing Villa's threat. But Liverpool in attack, I, I'm pretty sure I remember tweeting that Liverpool hadn't had a single shot inside the first half an hour. Um, I can't remember what the result ended up being. But I think despite the lack of reinforcements, as you say, I think... Um, Villa's defence is going to be a lot better this season. So I think the final player that I wanted to talk about before we kind of wrap up and speak about Dean Smith uh, is, of course, Ollie Watkins, Villa's record signing, put him straight up front. He came in uh, unchallenged, had that striking spot. Hat-trick, uh, room for more. Uh, is he the real deal, Josh? Uh, yeah, again, I think I think he's a good sign. He looks look a very like a very well-rounded player, I'd say. I think he has. he seems to have very few weaknesses to his game. Um, I think I, I think Klopp actually after the match labelled them as as undefendable, which is you know quite a shout considering he's up against 
lads of Virgil van Dijk, for 90 minutes. I think he occupied Van Dijk and Gomez quite well throughout. Um, you know, he's English, 24 years old, so he should be approaching his peak years. They should still be to come. And, um, yeah, just in terms of him being quite complete, I think it's it's really valuable if you can get a striker who who can can hold the ball up, but as well as holding the ball up, he can offer a threat in behind as well. Most strikers can only do one. If you, if you think of, say, for example, Jamie Vardy, he's running in behind. If you think of Troy Deeney, maybe he's doing the opposite and holding the ball up. But the, the real all-rounded players, um, like Watkins maybe, um, seems to be able to do both. He can hold up the ball, he can bring others into play, he can occupy a defence, aerial duels, but he can run in behind as well. He's got a bit of pace about him. So, yeah, he looks like a good sign and he looks like one that, you know, unlike maybe Wesley and Samata, this looks like a sign in that, it, you know, it's, it's unlikely to be a position that Villa are going to have to revisit in the transfer window in, say, six months to a year to two years, maybe. I think he's he's going to have that position nailed down for a few years now, unless unless maybe he gets poached, which hopefully doesn't happen. Yeah, I was thinking uh, that's third time looking now for Villa with uh, you know your Wesley signing, your Smatter signing, and finally Ollie Watkins. It looks you know Touchwood that uh, turned the corner there with that up front role, and the last role to speak about is that of Dean Smith. So. Um, Villa fans love him now. I will be honest. They, they really adore him and they adored him at the time they, when he signed. They adored him when he led us to promotion and maybe the exciting phases of our return to the Premier League. Um, but those, there's been winters of Dean Smith, right, where we've gone winless in the Championship, uh, winless in the Premier League towards the end and um, before lockdown. Um, so there is, overall, there's been a mixed reaction. But I think um, now Villa fans love him. They're backing him. Um, do you think he's a manager worth the the Villa faithful keeping their their backing tactic from a tactical perspective? Has he got what it takes to uh, take Villa to the next level in your eyes? I mean, hopefully so. It's his boyhood club, isn't it? But I, th- I think in the past I've had I've had a few concerns about him, particularly in relation to the defensive side of the game. You know, obviously I followed the numbers throughout the season, see how teams are getting on. And last season, when lockdown happened, Villa had comfortably the worst defence, facing all kinds of shots. Um, the expected goals against was quite high, and the goals conceded column. You know, if you want to be that simplistic about it, the goals conceded column was no good either. Um, but he's, I think with Dean Smith at the same time, obviously he spent a bit of time at Brentford. I think he's quite he's quite smart and he's quite a modern thinker of the game. I think he understands recruitment. You know, any any manager would if he spent time at Brentford. Um, I think he spoke spoke in the public about the expected goals before. And he's dedicated to, to the attacking side of the game. And I think if you look at the signs Villa have made this summer, this summer I think is, has been the the big difference really. I think last season was obviously quantity. This season you've been able to be, get a bit of quality in. And I think if you look at the players that you've signed, you've signed the centre mid, Ross Barkley, Matty Cash, right back. But if you, if, you, if you look at both of those players, despite being centre mid and a right back, they're both really attacking players. They're both, they're both offensive, both players that possess plenty of offensive qualities. And in terms of making a difference to your goal difference, which is what signings are supposed to do, really, I think he's, he's invested in players that are likely to, to, to bring Villa up the table in terms of preventing goals on the defensive side, but adding goals on the attacking side as well. Um, you know, Pep Linders, Klopp's assistants have spoken in the past about. Constantly signing players who are capable of playing the last pass 
Uh, I thought that was a great line because you know, no matter if you had a cent- if you think of Liverpool, for example, the centre backs, the left back, the right back, the defensive midfielder, every play you'd expect to be able to pose some sort of attack and threat in terms of playing that last pass. And I think Dean Smith has added players who can do that. He's added an attack, you know, attack and players basically who are going to bring his style of play more into the club basically. Um, while also improving the defensive side of the game, as I said, since lockdown. So I think Villa are definitely on an upwards trajectory. I think I mentioned that at the, at the back end of my piece. Um, and it's going to be interesting to see, see how they do this season because I think they're going to probably su- surprise a few. To finish on a, a, a Liverpool note, um, how do you bounce back if you're like an elite team playing you know, the high line, the frenetic football, the high tempo? Your tactics, for the large part, have worked since you've started at the club. How do you bounce back from 7-2? Do you, I mean, from a Villa perspective, if that happens to us, you know, rip up time, time to turn the plan around because we're going nowhere good. But from a Liverpool perspective, you, you take the 7-2, it's not worth ripping that panel, right? It's going to get you the results nine times out of ten. Yeah, well, this this was kind of the, the crux of me piece for the Liverpool echo, really, because... Um... It, you know, when when you get beat seven two, the last big defeat that I can remember like that for the Liverpool team was was six one against Stoke, Brendan Rodgers, um, sadly as well Stephen Gerrard's last game I think, um, but that that kind of signalled the need for some sort of overhaul in some capacity. This, although it's to an extent worse, it's it doesn't really feel like that for me at least. I think rather than being a lesson. Say, for example, when Liverpool lost 4-1 to Spurs in the league or when we when we were 3-0 up against Sevilla half-time in the Champions League and we ended up drawing 3-3, I think those those matches offered an insight into evolution. You know, Liverpool clearly, after the Sevilla game, for example, needed to be better at controlling match scenarios, better at seeing matches out. You know, shock a few months later, Van Dijk, Fabinho and Allison arrive at the club. All three of those players have really cool heads, really calm players, despite whatever's going on on the pitch. Um, so I think considering Liverpool's level, and as I've said, Leeds, Chelsea and Arsenal taking four, five and six shots each against Liverpool and Liverpool posting 20-plus, I don't think there's a great deal wrong. I think it's just more going to be a bit of a wake-up call and... It will be interesting the next match because it's against Everton, it's a Merseyside derby. But I think it's just going to be a bit of a learning curve and a bit of a wake-up call as opposed to, you know, a signal for, for major changes because I think Liverpool are still the best team in the country. I still think Liverpool are going to win the league. But you have to be better at doing at doing your game, at doing your football because if you're not, you know, I think I think early in the season, for example, Liverpool hadn't yet really integrated Thiago. Um, one or two players injured, and Liverpool were still beating the likes of Chelsea and Arsenal quite comfortably. Whereas City, you know, they lost five two to uh, Leicester the day before this match. They just um, drew one all, I think, with um, or a few hours earlier, drew one all with with Leeds. So maybe from a Liverpool perspective, it was just a bit like you know we don't even have to be a hundred percent to win this league. It's already in our hands, and hopefully this will act as a bit of a wake-up call that, you know, no matter how good you are as a team, you still need to be at it every single week to get results in this league. Otherwise, you know, you can lose seven-two. 
I think it's a perfect lesson for us and Villa to follow. Then they can't get um, too swept away by a 7-2. I think that's going to happen every time. There's still lessons to be learned from their perspective. But Josh, thank you very, very much for uh, jumping on the show and uh, educating all, all of us about uh, one of the most harrowing results in uh, Liverpool's recent history. It must have been hard. Uh, but where can people find you if they want to uh, bug you for a little bit more? So I'm on Twitter, very active on Twitter, at Distance Covered. Um, if this is going up on YouTube, which I assume it is, you can see the Twitter handle on my name now. Um, so yeah, at Distance Covered, I write about lots of Premier League teams. You know, Villa quite frequently, Liverpool probably most frequently. But uh, yeah, if you wanna if you wanna catch me, that's probably where to go. Perfect. Thank you for coming on, Josh. Thank you for listening to AVFC Extra, an additional dose of Aston Villa content for you, brought to you by the Claret and Blue podcast team. If you enjoyed the episode, please do get in touch with us, get involved in the comment sections, tweet us at Claret Blue Pod, or leave us a review on iTunes. We really do appreciate it. We'll catch you again very soon with some more content. Until then, up the villa. Up the villa.